Let's take a moment to pray. Lord Almighty, we give You glory. You are worthy of all glory. And we thank You. We praise You for the opportunity to come before You and before Your Word. And again, we ask that You would remove those things that would distract us from hearing Your Word so that we will be changed. We will be made more and more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now so that we will be a blessing. Amen. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he hold, held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not! I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And look, behold, pay attention. I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys to death and Hades. This is the Jesus with whom everyone has to do. This is not the soft, white Jesus with hippie hair and sandals and a nice white robe that never gets dirty. This is the cosmic Lord of all. This is the personal Creator King of the universe who will one day come in judgment on any and everyone who refuses His friendship. And yet, And yet, the same author, his best friend on earth, John, recorded some other words of a heavenly messenger. Weep no more. Look, behold, pay attention. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw who is this mighty one who can open the seals? A lamb standing as though slain. Jonathan Edwards famously said of this verse that what we can say about our passage tonight. There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so get past the old English. But what he says is, it's remarkable that the cosmic Lord who will judge all is also the humble Lamb who was slain. 
for God's people. The excellency of Christ is that He is the cosmic Lord of all. There is no one above Him. The excellency of Christ is that He is also the obedient Lord. He made Himself lower than the lowest so that He can lift us up. Praise Jesus for both these excellencies so that you And I can rejoice now and with Him forever in eternity. Amen? Amen. And let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. How is it that the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one so impressively described in chapter 1 of Revelation, how is it that the cosmic Lord of all dies he's murdered by those whom he created how is the lion also a lamb how is a mighty warrior and the perfect sacrifice in one person at the same time now our passage tonight offers an answer Jesus is the obedient Lord. Tonight we are offered the question, what does it mean that Christ emptied Himself? What we find is that the cosmic Lord, the ruler over everything, supreme over all, is also the obedient Lord who emptied Himself to become our Savior. Be astounded. Be amazed at your obedient Lord of all. As we come to our passage tonight, Paul continues in his effort to expound the theme that we ran into several weeks ago. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You've heard me say now on multiple occasions, you can say that the rest of Philippians is just kind of Paul's sermon on that phrase. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, here in chapter 2 of Philippians, I would argue that that is exactly what Paul is doing. We find that Paul is giving examples that you and I are to follow as we pursue a worthy life. And Jesus is Paul's first example. Now it will take two sermons and all we're going to do is scratch the surface, but we are going to see in these two sermons that Jesus is the obedient Lord. He is the one of whom Edward said there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He could not wrap his brain around it. All we're going to be able to do is scratch the surface. He is the obedient Lord. Jesus was willing to obey His Father's commands. And you and I are to imitate this. He is the cosmic Lord. He is the one who will judge the universe before whom you and I will bow. Be astounded. Be amazed 
Be astounded. Be breathless in the face of the reality of the cosmic Lord. Be amazed in today's parlance. Have your mind blown. Just, just, just try to think and wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus is obedient and the Lord at the same time. Jesus, tonight we see Paul's clearest expression of these two diverse excellencies. Paul anticipates John's exposition that Christ is both the lion and the lamb. And he does so by saying that Christ is the preexistent God, the cosmic Lord, as we will spend time looking at next week, who is also the man humbling himself to the point of death, the obedient Lord that we see tonight. And so, in light of this, let us turn to God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, where we see Paul write, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death." even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me put this in one sentence. That is, Jesus Christ is the obedient Lord. He is the pre-existent God of the universe, became a man so that He could defeat death. Bringing glory to God and salvation to us, causing Him to therefore be known by us as the cosmic Lord. His humble, obedient sacrifice, that's a key phrase, His humble, obedient sacrifice is held up to us as an example to imitate so that you and I can walk worthy of the good news. Whatever word you want to put there. The diverse excellencies. The paradoxical Lord. This is the one to whom we come. Jesus is glorious. The cosmic Lord. And Jesus is beautiful, the obedient Lord. Therefore, allow your heart to love Him. Allow your heart to gaze upon Him and see with the eyes of your heart the glorious, obedient Lord. Meditate on the fact that the personal Creator King of the universe came to tabernacle among us. To put on our skin as a tent so that He could take it off so that we can put on His immortality. Be astounded. Be amazed at your 
obedient Lord. I think that's what Paul, part of what Paul is getting at here in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now as we come to verse 5, I want to begin talking about the second half of that verse and then return to the first. Now the translation of the ESV, as it's up there in the first slot, is certainly possible. And it stands as it stands, it's certainly theologically also correct. We have Christ's mind available to us because we are in Christ. I think that that's true. However, I think that the ESV's translation misses the point of the paragraph, and I think it also mistranslates a key word in the Greek. And as I mentioned last week, of it's missing the point of the whole chapter. Chapter 2 is a description of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the good news. And Paul wishes that we would make his joy complete by living the examples like he gives us. Jesus first, then himself, then Timothy, and then Epaphroditus as we go through chapter 2. Now the King James Version translates verse 5 better. It says, let this mind be in you, key phrase here, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as we read a few minutes ago, that's the way the NASB translates it as well. Now, do me a favor. Don't tell anybody at First Baptist and don't tell Averill Henry that I chose the, e the King James over the ESV in this case, okay? And certainly don't let Chet Jr. know, because he'll rub that one in my face forever. <laughs> but these verses show how Christ thought. Remember, how to think is essential for Paul and is doubly so here in Philippians. So see, let's see what this mind is that Paul exhorts us to have. So we'll do that by looking at what we read last time. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same mind. Have this mind among yourselves. Having this same mind. Having the same love. Being of full accord in one mind. How do we do this, Paul? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look at not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul, what mind is it that you want us to have? Well, exactly what we did two Sundays ago in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now it's having this mind, the one that's described in verses 3 and 4, that will bring or complete Paul's joy. By the way, having this mind will also complete your joy. Have you lived on this world long enough yet? Has anybody in this room lived on this world long enough yet to realize having all the stuff that you might want is not going to complete your joy? Hmm. But look with me <coughs> at verse 3. I noted this two weeks ago as well. 
Paul, I think, takes pains to say, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, this is a command. By the way, I was noting to my little six-year-old girl the difference between a command and a request this week. I gave her a command, and she chose to take it as a request. And guess what? I didn't respond the way she thought I might. She's getting instruction. I need instruction, right? But that brings to mind, hmm, if the Lord gives us a command, I wonder if he has any more right than I do, for example, when I give my daughter a command to expect obedience. Oops, that hurts. Let's move on. Paul, in God's name, gives us a command to count others. Paul gives us this so that we will know what it's like to complete his joy and by extension, our joy as we are living worthy of Christ's good news. And it is exactly how he describes part of Christ's own humble, obedient sacrifice. You're going to hear that phrase again tonight. Humble, obedient sacrifice we find it as again i noted two weeks ago that christ humbled himself and how is it that he humbled himself he humbled himself in part in that he did not count he did not reckon he did not think that equality of god was something to be grasped but he could freely let it go so that He would be our obedient Lord, and we would know that He is our cosmic Lord. Christ had, has, and always will have equality with God. That is not disputed. But what we see here is that now His equality with God is known by everyone who cares to know. And this little blip in history that exists right now where he allows that knowledge to be ignored will not last long. But now we know because he made himself obedient to his Father. How did he do that? Let's look. Verses 6-8. through Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now we get to the question where we started. What does it mean that Jesus Christ humbled himself? himself. And we need to pause here because when we are dealing with the mystery of the second person of the Trinity, we need to have all humility. It befits us to recognize that there is mystery that we will not understand. We, excuse me, we will not comprehend 10 million million years from now. But we do know true truth. And how do we know true truth? Because he told us. And what do 
we know. We recognize that there is a paradox. We recognize that there is a truth that appears contradictory, but it stands on evidence from good authority, namely, in this case, God's Word, that both aspects are true. And this emptying himself is a paradox. How does the cosmic Lord of the universe empty himself? Well, Paul tells us three ways. First, he became a servant. Second, he became human. Third, he became obedient to the point of death. Now, now really, that's the end of the discussion. Paul throws something out. The context says this is what it is. There you go. We don't need to go any further than that. (laughs) But you all know me better than that, don't you? I want to say two things. First, I want to emphasize that Paul's assertion that Jesus is in the form of God points unambiguously towards the deity of Christ. And I I started writing notes and I was going to explain how the Greek really makes this crystal clear and I still haven't decided I'm not going to do that next week but I'm not going to do that this week take it from me if you wish I'll point you in a good direction this is unambiguously pointing to the fact that Jesus is the pre-existent personal creator king of the universe and God now in flesh is Christ And no amount of twisting by heretics can change the fact that Jesus is the cosmic Lord. But secondly, I want to point out that Paul asserts that Jesus' life can be summarized with the word obedience. From conception to death, right here in verses 6-8, through we see that Jesus obeyed the Father. Jesus is the obedient Lord. Be astounded. Let your heart meditate on that. The Creator King of the universe is obedient to his Father. Be amazed! Wow! If you take time, tonight for example, after you lay down, or don't turn on the TV, you'll have a better evening if you just let these words sink in. Now, one way I have done this in the past, when I want to meditate on God's Word, the first thing I do is I say, Lord, open Your Word to me. Remove from me the things that would distract me from spending time in Your Word right now. And then the second thing I do is I go over whatever it is I want to meditate on one word at a time. And I play with it a little bit. So I might read it quickly once, twice, five times. I might, as I'm reading it quickly, I'll pick the next word and I'll emphasize that 
word as I read it over and over again. Or I'll just, like I said, read slowly and I'll just think, what does this word mean right here? All the time I'm saying, Lord, show me what it is you want me to pull out of this. Be astounded. Be amazed at the Lord Paul reveals right here. He is your obedient Lord. Now, side note, let us deny that Jesus in any way emptied Himself of His deity. That is completely false. There is absolutely no truth in it and it should be banished to the pit of hell. Theologians have come up with what is called the hypostatic. By the way, you might have heard that phrase, but you might not know what it means. Hypostatic just means personal. It means personal. So you could dump the word hypostatic and just put personal union. What does it mean that Jesus is a person with two natures? That's what hypostatic means. What is this God-man Jesus Christ? And it seeks to define in human terms what really is incomparable. Incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. There is a union of two natures, the divine nature and the human nature in one person, Jesus Christ. The definition, the fancy way of putting it, the hypostatic or personal union is undiminished deity and perfect humanity are united forever in the person of Jesus Christ. If you go back to the Chalcedonian Creed, they simply said, Jesus is truly God and truly man. And my friends, let us with humility come before this because this truly is a mystery that we really will never comprehend. But we can be amazed by it because we know it's true. He told us. Still, I think it would be something that we would stumble over if we did not see these diverse excellencies, to steal Edwards' phrase, if we did not see these diverse excellencies everywhere throughout the New Testament. So how does the New Testament show that Christ emptied himself? Well, for example, in John 17, 5, Jesus laid aside his glory. In John 15, 9, he restrained his independent use of power. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he became poor for your sake. In 2 Corinthians 13, 4, he accepted hardship. In Mark 9, 12, he received scorn. And in John 10, 17 and 18, he accepted death. Jesus emptied himself for you. All those verses are in the back of your note sheet. So rejoice at the astounding depths that Christ dove to achieve for us. Rejoice at the amazing heights that Christ is naturally accustomed to because he is the cosmic Lord. Be astounded. Be amazed at your obedient Lord. He is your Lord. Make no mistake. You owe Him your life. Make no mistake. You owe Him the sacrifice of so organizing your life, not according to your whims and desires and covetings, but according to the attitudes and actions that reflect a humble, obedient sacrifice. Make no mistake.
Do not presume upon the grace of God and ignore His commands. That is the last thing that someone who claims Christ would want to do. You call yourself a Christian? Then live like your Lord. In the humble, obedient sacrifice for the good of those around you. I'm not making this stuff up. Listen. Your Lord lived in humble, obedient sacrifice for the good of those who would trust His promises. You call yourself a Christian, then live like your Lord in the humble, obedient sacrifice for the good of those around you. This is a fairly good definition of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He is your obedient Lord. He humbly, obediently sacrificed for you so that you would not have to. You don't have to stew and fret and be consumed by fear of not measuring up. You don't have to because He did it for you. So trust Him. You can rejoice in your humble, obedient sacrifice that brings glory to God, joy to your heart, and growth to Christ's kingdom as you are astounded and amazed at your obedient Lord. But I'm going to tell you a secret. You will not be astounded by your obedient Lord if your eyes are not on Him. You will not be amazed at your obedient Lord if the eyes of your lusts and covetings and desirings are on something that are not on them for His sake. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. David Livingston famously said, I never made a sacrifice. He said this in reference to his decades of service in Africa to open the interior to missionaries who would come and share the love of Jesus. Secular people want to just call David Livingston an explorer. But why did he explore? He explored because he wanted to open what he called darkest Africa to those who would come behind him and share the love of Jesus. What Livingston meant was that his perfect example, his helper, his Lord, was with him in ways that he would not have been had he stayed in relatively safe London. May we never make a sacrifice either. Instead, let us be astounded. Let us be amazed at our obedient Lord. We need to take a shift. I remember coming to this passage, it's been more than 20 years now, in seminary, and the argument was on the canonic theory and all blah, 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 blah. Whatever. We 
spilled a ream of ink and destroyed trees talking about this theory and that theory and blah, 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 blah. You know what is true about this passage? Paul is not so concerned about some theory that's going to be developed in the 19th century and then vomited out in the 20th century. Paul is concerned about our behavior. What he is saying here is not some ivory tower theology. He's talking about flesh and blood reality. He's talking about fundamentally what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel. And what we see is that Jesus lived a humble, obedient sacrifice. That is the true meaning of Jesus emptying Himself. Jesus emptying Himself is to teach us ethics, how to live, not metaphysics, essential realities about the second person, the Trinity, which it does. I'm not going to deny. But we'll have plenty of time to meditate on that when we get to see Him face to face. So, I have a question. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself in light of the fact that Paul is expositing this idea that you and I must live worthy of the calling of the, of the good news of Jesus Christ? Again, I can only tell you what I do. But start with prayer. God, I am far from doing this right. I am light years away. Help. Help, Lord, is a prayer that God will always hear. Amen? What should we pray? Well, start off. Father, give me wisdom. Give me give me. Give me understanding. And then, Father, give me power to live that understanding. But as you've heard me say before, you can't ask for wisdom. You can't ask for power and then just sit on your duff. You won't know if you got it or not. The only way you'll know that you got that wisdom, the only way you'll know that you got that power is if you get up. And move forward, trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. Pray, Lord, give me wisdom to know how and when to speak and how and when to shut up. And then give me power to do so. And as you do, as you live by the wisdom that He gives, as you live by the power that He gives, you will focus on Him more than the stuff and circumstances and relationships that we covet. So the next time you're tempted to covet stuff, circumstances, and relationships, remember Jesus, the cosmic, obedient Lord, and be astounded. Let him speak to your soul and be astounded.
verses 9 through 11. Therefore, because he emptied himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's the name Jesus has now. We still know him as Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, amen. Here we see the cosmic Lord became the obedient Lord who came to earth in humble, obedient sacrifice so that we would see that He is the cosmic Lord. He did not magically become the cosmic Lord. No. That's a heresy. You'll have to ask Pastor Benji which one. I never memorized all those. But it's a heresy. Jesus was the most powerful person in the universe before time began. However, What Paul is telling us here is we would not have known that. We would not have known that Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, was had the name above every name unless he had obedience, unless he had become the obedient Lord and come and sacrificed himself for us. Now you know. And with knowledge comes responsibility. Now you know. Now you have no excuse. It may be that God will give dreams to those who have never had a chance to otherwise hear the good news of the Son of God. I hear lots of people telling stories like that. I guess I believe it. God can do that. It says in Zechariah that He would, so it makes sense. I wonder though, when I hear these stories about dreams coming to those who need to hear the good news but otherwise don't have an opportunity to hear the good news, I wonder if when we hear stories of people having dreams and meeting Christ in that way, if we will be reprimanded for our lack of loves that made those dreams necessary. Are we the ones who were silent that made the rocks cry out? May it not be. I do not believe, however, however many dreams happen in other parts of the world. I don't, I don't pretend to know. I do not believe that your neighbors will be so fortunate, however. We do not want to be the watchman on the wall that God placed for your neighbors who failed to blow the trumpet for those near us. Instead, we want them to see the cosmic Lord because we are serving the obedient Lord. Be astounded by that Lord and people will notice. Be amazed at your obedient Lord and people will be drawn or repelled. That's between them and Jesus. But what we see here is Paul's justification for his use of the word Lord. 
I so want to get more into this. We'll, we'll get more into it next week. But Paul, throughout all of his epistles, calls Jesus Lord. Kurios. And he uses this word because the Greek version of the Old Testament, what we find is that this word kurios is used in place of Lord in all capital letters that Pastor Benji reminds us frequently means Yahweh. He does not mean to confuse the persons of the Trinity. Instead, Paul wants us to see Jesus as he really is. The pre-existent God who put skin on that we could rejoice in him. And one of his disciples, I believe, wrote the book of Hebrews and said this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. That's the cosmic Lord. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Oh, we will have much to say about the cosmic Lord next time. But let us not lose the vision that the one who came is also the obedient Lord so that we can join Him by His grace, by His power to accomplish kingdom purposes. We can join with Him as co-laborers. This week, praise Jesus that He came as our obedient Lord. He is the one who bowed lower than us so that He could lift us higher than we can imagine. Be astounded. Be amazed at your obedient Lord. Oh, Lord, we cannot do this. We cannot. We desperately need God the Spirit to come in us and to work through us, to work for us so that we would know You better and therefore love You and trust You more. So that those around us would see Your humble, obedient sacrifice lived through us. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.